How do you know if you're wise? You do a Google search, right? Which is exactly what I did on that question. How do you know if you're wise? And as Google does, in less than a second, I got 720 million places that I could possibly go to find an answer to that question. Let me just share with you three. Three of the places that I went to. The first one, 17 unique signs that you're an old soul and wise beyond your years. Or how about seven signs you are becoming wise? Kind of speaks to the, the growth process, right? Maybe wisdom is something that can be acquired, maybe? The third one, the last one I'll share, is 15 characteristics of a wise person. Well, that caught my attention because we're going to be looking at seven adjectives today that characterize a person who has wisdom from above. And then I got to number eight. Now, mind you, this is 15 characteristics of a wise person. Number eight is they're guided by wisdom. <laughs> it's like, okay, tell me something I don't already know. A little bit of circular reasoning there. Or number 14, and, and this is pretty funny, number 14, they never pay full price. I thought, what? And then I noticed where, where this came from. It was from an organization called Money Crashers. So they obviously had a financial agenda. They were leading up to, to something. Well, let's turn in our Bibles. If you've got a paper Bible, turn there. If you've got a digital Bible, turn it on and scroll there. If you need a paper Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. I'm going to put the passage up on the screen as I read through it for the first time. I'm not going to leave it up there, though, because what I really want you to do as we go through this passage, these six verses, I want you to be looking at your Bible, the Bible that you use on a regular basis. Now, that might be digital, and maybe you have the ability to highlight something, or it might be paper, and you might want to circle a word or phrase or two um, along the way here. Let me read James 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness, I love that phrase, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, now as we turn our attention to a little closer look at these six verses, we ask that your Holy Spirit, as promised, would guide us into truth. We thank you that we're not just gonna do a mental exercise here, but rather your Holy Spirit is gonna take the truth of your word, and we pray that you would drive it home deep into our hearts. That it might go through our minds, but hit our hearts. And might take, take root and bear fruit 
that will change the way we, we live. That's our desire, Father. So we ask that you would now do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you know me, you know that I like to talk about context, especially as it relates to God's Word. And it's no different today. The context of the book of James and the larger context of all of Scripture is, in fact, what will inform our understanding. It will allow us, it will determine for us our understanding of these six verses. We can't just look at these six verses in isolation, but they're connected. So just very quickly, I want to say something that I shared a few weeks ago when I had the opportunity to preach a message on an earlier chapter. Namely, James is writing to believers in Jesus. He's writing to believers in Jesus. He makes this abundantly clear, repetitively clear. In chapter 1, verse 2, he begins by identifying his audience as my brothers. Later in that first chapter, he calls them my beloved brothers. He begins chapter 2, the very first verse, with the same phrase, my brothers. And then later in the chapter, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, my beloved brothers again. Here in chapter 3, he starts in the first verse again with my brothers. And then in verse 10, refers to them once again as my brothers. In other words, James is talking to family He's talking to men and women, youth, boys and girls who profess allegiance to King Jesus. And he's talking to collective bodies of these like-minded believers in Jesus that are scattered abroad, but they're meeting, connected, kind of like we are today in what we would call local churches. That's whom he's writing to. A second point of context is that James has already introduced this idea of wisdom. You saw in the reading of the Word, it's all about wisdom today. Well, James has already introduced this. In the very first chapter, the fifth verse, he makes this statement. If any of you lacks wisdom, you may have memorized this. Let him what? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and what's going to happen? It will be given him. So wisdom, I want us to see right out of the gate here this morning, wisdom the kind of wisdom we're going to talk about, wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom, is a gift. We can pray for it. God will give it to us. James is best understood with the backdrop of the Old Testament behind him. I made mention of that a few weeks ago as well. James is writing this before Paul writes his letters. There are some connections which we'll talk about later, but it's best to understand James in the light of the Old Testament. That's why James is called the Proverbs of the New Testament, because he writes in a proverbial sort of a way. And it's also best understood, the book of James, if you realize that he, on occasion, is reflecting on things he heard his older brother teach. A reminder, this James, the writer of this book, is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the oldest natural-born son of Joseph and Mary, but the half-brother of Jesus. And so he oftentimes will, will write in such a way that you can tell he is, he's coming to grips with things that he's heard this brother, whom he, remember, originally didn't follow. He thought Jesus was crazy. But he has come to faith in Jesus, and he writes accordingly. Also, these six verses that we're going to zero in on here this morning, they're really connecting verses. This whole section connects us to 
a couple things. It harkens back to what we heard last week. It connects us with the tongue. Uh, we heard teaching last week on uh, James's teaching on the tongue. In fact, the first two-thirds of this chapter, the first 12 verses, is all about the tongue. And then in chapter 4, next week, we'll be looking at the really the harsh exhortation that James has to give these, these fellow believers in Jesus. And so these six verses are critical because they're going to connect how we, how we talk with how we deal with other people in the church, and they're very, very significant as a result. I had a phone conversation earlier this week with someone who was here last week, in this room last week, and heard the message and called me on the phone and said that uh, they were challenged by the teaching last week on the tongue, but that what was a greater challenge to this person, they confessed that the, uh, the, the, the churning, the, the turmoil inside their mind and inside their heart. They could bite their tongue and not be guilty of the stuff that's talked about earlier in the chapter, but they recognized that there was still a churning and a turmoil. And I said, well, come back, because that's exactly what I get to talk about this week, right? That's what these six verses deal with, is the inner turmoil that comes when we uh, maybe bite our tongue. You know, when you really want to say something, you want to just get it out there, because that's what culture tells us to do, right? Just get your feelings out there, let people know how you really feel. James has just said in the first part of chapter 3, no, don't do that. The tongue is a fire. Don't do that. But what happens when you bite your tongue and you, you bridle it and you don't, you don't spew forth, but there's still this churning going on? Well, that's what these verses deal with. So here's my big idea. Here's what I think is the essence of these six verses. Heavenly wisdom yields a harvest of righteous conduct, producing peace. There's a purpose for the harvest, and it's going to produce peace. So we're going to continue that thread. We're going to be looking for that as we go through here. And I think there's a progression that you'll see in this text, and I'll keep mentioning it to you until you do see it. Heavenly wisdom, this wisdom from above, is a gift. It's a gift from God. It, this is not something we can conjure up, work harder for, try a little more. No, it's a gift. And it's given in answer to prayer. So in a sense, these six verses specify the request of chapter 1, verse 5. Lord, give me wisdom. I need wisdom. When you pray that prayer, you're going to be able to pray that prayer with some specificity, with these, these specific things that he's going to talk about here. So there's this progression of thought, and then ultimately it leads to peace. It, it produces peace. And again, he's writing to groups of believers, so he has in mind uh, peace within the church, within the body of Christ. There's four points that I'm going to use. You could view them as like four pegs on a wall. You can hang this passage on these four pegs. The first one is this. Behavior reveals wisdom. This is a very general one, and you'll see why in just a second. But let me reread re the first two verses. Verse 13, and follow along in the Bible in front of you. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitterness, 
jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast. It's like, do not boast about it and be false to the truth. Behavior reveals wisdom. In verse 13, James begins by, he grabs our attention with a question, but then he follows with a challenge. Wisdom, like faith, shows by our good works. That connects back to chapter 2. You remember chapter 2? Our good works reveal that we have faith. People get hung up on chapter 2, and hopefully after the teaching of a few weeks ago, you're not as hung up maybe as you had been. We want to pit James against Paul and try to understand that. And, and the point that James is making is you claim to have faith, real, true faith. It's going to issue forth. It's going to be demonstrated in works. That's all that he's saying. Well, it also seems to suggest in this passage here today <clears throat> that wisdom is also a product of faith. So we show our faith and our wisdom by our behavior, by our conduct. Notice also at the end of verse 13 that we show it in what? In the meekness of wisdom. That term is, is, is great because it's used throughout the New Testament. It speaks of a gentleness of spirit or a mildness of disposition. It's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I love that definition. Jesus uses the word. Jesus calls himself meek. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And then Paul uses the same term again in his letter to the church at Galatia, chapter 5, where he talks about fruit of the Spirit. Meekness is one of those fruit of the Spirit. Now remember, Paul makes the case that this kind of fruit, meekness, is produced by the Holy Spirit who lives within. I, I can't you know, try harder and conjure up and somehow sweat out of my pores meekness. No, it, it's fruit. It's fruit of the Spirit, according to Paul. And as we'll see today, it's, it's, a, it, it's emblematic of this wisdom that comes from above. In verse 14, James flips the script, so to speak. I didn't mean to go, I didn't mean to go forward here. Let's see if we can back up. There we go. Sorry. You, you already got a glimpse where we're headed, though. That's okay. But in verse 14, James shows the opposite. He observes that negative behavior, namely bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, also reveal wisdom. Think of it that way. But it's wisdom that's not connected to reality. In fact, it says, James says, it's, it's false to the truth. Let's look at these two terms here in, in verse 14. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, just for a minute. So we'll get a clearer picture and see if we can kind of set the stage for what's about to come. Bitter jealousy, in the original language of which James is writing, namely Greek, is two words, actually. Harsh zeal harsh zeal, being fanatical about something in a really harsh sort of a way, fanaticism. But it's fanaticism that here in the context leads to rivalry and a bitter disputing spirit amongst believers. In fact, if that's not enough, he then throws in a very strong term, which we translate with two words, selfish ambition. It's one word in 
the original language, and it, it speaks of being fractious. Aristotle, who used the term, said that it described the politician who courted popular applause by trickery. <laughs> when I saw that, I thought, oh, wow, have we just seen that on display? Both sides of the aisle in our country, right? Well, here, James is applying it to believers in the church. Several commentators have said this, it's best translated as party spirit, having a, a party spirit about something within the church. In other words, being interested more in the victory of my personal opinions than in the victory of God's truth. Wow. It's having pride in one's own knowledge rather than humility in one's own ignorance. Another, wow. Just last night, Pastor John, who's of course preaching on this same topic passage this morning in Gladstone, he texted Travis and Scott and me and said, oh, I found a great illustration in a commentary. And I thought, I got room for that. I can slip that in. This is, this is the quote that he came up with out of a commentary on this selfish ambition, describing the people who exhibit this. They are vile little support groups that mutually envenom one another. I had to look up the word envenom. I didn't know what that was. It means to inject poison. They, in, they mutually envenom one another in sustained attacks, and to top things off, they were boasting about it. Whew, Lord have mercy. But can you think of examples of that in local churches? You know, if I was preaching this message just a year ago, certainly two or three years ago, I would have talked about something like uh, worship music. The party spirit, the fractious party spirit that occurs in local churches about worship music. You know, oh, it's too slow, it's too fast, it's too loud, it's not loud enough. You don't use the right, right things. Drums, are you kidding? Get them off the stage. Party spirit. I've grown up in churches where church is split over issues like that. Or maybe the color of the carpet. I mean, those are silly things, right? Well, we live in a day and age, we live in a pandemic right now, which has re released and revealed some party spirit. I don't know the details, but in the uh, online sermon that Pastor Scott uh, videotaped, and it's, people are watching it right now, people in our church are watching it right now, he references a church somewhere nearby, I don't know the church, he didn't identify it, but somewhere nearby, where just recently the pastor resigned. And he resigned because half of the church insisted they won't come to church unless they can wear a mask. And the other half in, said, we're not coming if people have to wear masks. And so the pastor was forced to resign because they, they were at loggerheads. It, it's like, are you kidding me? James says, no, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> this is real. We're dealing with, he was dealing with this in the first century, and we're dealing uh, with it as well. Well, where does that kind of wisdom that we've just been describing, where does that come from? And I've already accidentally revealed this. It comes from the pit of hell. I like to call it hellish wisdom. Hellish wisdom yields a vile harvest. Look at the next couple verses, 15, 16. Let me reread those. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, notice there, that's a repeat from verse 14, there will be disorder 
in every vile practice. The source of this wisdom is earthly, it's unspiritual, in fact, it's demonic. Uh, these three are arranged in, in sort of an ascending order of strength, but where is it taking us? It's taken us downward in a spiral that ends, it ends in hell, in the pit of hell. Earthly, or better yet, earthbound. It's wisdom that does not take God's supernatural intervention into account. It's just natural. Um, it's a narrow perspective that fails to consider the sovereign control of God over the universe. The sources of this kind of wisdom, the standards of this kind of wisdom, are earthly. Success is measured in worldly terms. Its goals reflect this world, not God's kingdom. The source of that kind of wisdom we've been talking about is earthly. Secondly, it's soulish. ESV says it's unspiritual. A better translation would be soulish. It's sensual, not in the sexual sense, but sensual in that it's only defined by what you can uh, come into contact with through your senses. What you can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, feel. It's devoid of the spirit. It's devoid of the supernatural. And it's wisdom that is focused on one's self alone. It's soulish. And then third, and this is the most telling, it's demonic. That kind of wisdom we were describing there in verse 14, this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it's demonic. It, it, uh, it reveals the true source. It, it's demon-inspired. Do you remember earlier in the chapter, verse 6, uh, the discussion on the tongue, how the, the tongue is a fire? And verse 6 says, it's, and it's set on fire by what? It's set on fire by hell. Brothers, sisters, this is hellish wisdom. This is demonically inspired, motivated wisdom that issues forth in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's interesting, this kind of wisdom is characterized by a phrase that we've seen in other places in Scripture. It's characterized by the world, the flesh, or the devil. You see that? James is saying that exact same thing in a slightly different way. It's characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I don't want that kind of wisdom. The bottom line of that kind of hellish wisdom, which results in jealousy and selfish ambition, the bottom line is, notice, it brings disorder and every vile practice. There's a progression involved there as well. That term disorder speaks of instability or confusion or tumult. And immediately... I'm sure you can think of things. There's stuff going on in our culture right now that just, it, it comes right to mind. It's like, that's exactly what's happening. Well, that's because it's, it's issuing forth from hellish wisdom, not from the wisdom that James is about to talk about in the next couple of verses. That, that word disorder is used, uh, though, in the first chapter, in verse 8, it's translated as unstable, and it describes a double-minded man. And then again, in chapter 3, earlier, it's translated as restless, and it describes an evil, untamed tongue. That's what happens with hellish wisdom. It issues forth in jealousy, selfish ambition, thus creating disorder. So instead of producing peace, which James is calling for, and will especially call for in the, the remaining chapters of his book, instead of that, hellish wisdom creates strife and division. Well, what does produce peace, right? 
We've looked at the negative side, hellish wisdom, what does produce peace. Fortunately, the next verse gives us a wonderful example. Actually, several. Heavenly wisdom yields a spiritual harvest. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I'm going to put that up on the screen, and I've highlighted those seven adjectives because I want to camp out there. I had an especially interesting and rough week. Should have been anticipated. It happens when you're preparing to preach or teach on a particular passage. I won't do this to you, but I could read you a text that was laced with hellish wisdom. Absolutely laced with hellish wisdom. And I struggled to deal with that. Even had a conversation with the person who sent me the text, and that was even worse. And I, I told Pastor Scott this morning, we were in his office early and praying, and I said, I said man, ugh, all week long, it's like I've been clamoring to get out of verse 14 and get here, get into verse 17, and you'll see why. Because this, this verse, one verse, but it's so rich. So I want to unpack these seven adjectives. It'll, it'll help to describe this wisdom from above, what, what it looks like when it gets translated into behavior and then into daily conduct. And as I do this, I want to ask you, be thinking about, does, does someone come to mind? Someone may come to mind, may pop into your head, as, as we're describing one or more of these adjectives. And I'll share with you at the end of this, um, there's a person who came to mind immediately that really fulfilled all seven of these, and I'll talk about him in just a minute. It's interesting to view this list of seven in the original language in which uh, James is writing, in the, the Greek language. Because he uses, in Greek, he uses alliteration. He starts four of the terms with the same letter in Greek, the letter alpha. And then um, there's a couple of the, of the seven have a similar ending to them, so they, 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 kind of make, they kind of go together. And then another couple actually rhyme. They have a rhythm to them. In other words, what I think James is doing here is I think he's putting this in a format, in a language that his audience would, it would register with them. They would go, oh, wow, that's great. I, that'll help me to remember. It'll help me to memorize, because it's alliterated and it rhymes. So I suggested to, in our preaching meeting, I suggested to Scott and Travis and John that maybe we should get everybody to, to learn this verse in Greek, right? And we can, we can and they said, no, that, that won't work. The, the, the words are like this long anyways. They're really, really hard, but but it is fascinating, and it's fascinating to me, and I share that little factoid with you because even to the precise language of this letter, James is trying to drive this point home to his audience. He wants them to get it. He wants them to understand the significance of these, of these words and how they describe what wisdom from above is. Let's start with the first one. It's, it, it's the word pure. Think of the word holy. You know, the Old Testament concept of holiness or holy means to be set apart. The New Testament term for that is sanctification. This word pure is similar to that. In fact, let's go back to Aristotle again. Aristotle would use this word as, he said it, it, it's best defined as, it means to be pure enough to be able to approach the gods. Well, put that into our, our understanding. Following God, our Heavenly Father, through Jesus, following Him with unmixed, unadulterated motives. Pure. So the first thing, 
that issues forth from heavenly wisdom is this idea of purity. Secondly, heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above, is peaceable, literally peacemaking. It's not just a, an attitude being peaceable, but it's actually working to make peace. And the term in James's language spoke of, it, it, it connoted a, a, a connecting of people who are at odds with each other back into a right relationship with each other. That's the term that he's using here. And making that kind of peace, making the kind of peace that will produce right relationships with people, bringing people together and facilitating that. Third, to do that in a gentle way, a patient, considerate way. It's the person who knows how to temper justice with mercy, not quick to have our or demand our own way. And it's a person who adopts a a non-combative stance. Ladies, you may not be able to relate to this, but guys will. Guys, have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and it wasn't going that well, and you maybe felt they, they said something to your face and you maybe felt yourself square up on them? Do you know what I'm talking about? When, when, we, when we square up on someone, that's like, what am I preparing to do? I'm preparing to what, to go to blows or something? James is saying this this wisdom from above creates a, a behavioral trait that's gentle. It's the opposite of that. And by the way, it's listed as a prerequisite of church leaders in 1 Timothy 3. That same term is used to describe an elder or a deacon. Here at New Life, we call deacons ministry leaders. Okay? Interesting. They're also one who's open to reason. Wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom, creates an openness to reason. Literally, easy to persuade. Not in a weak, so a servile sort of a way, but in the sense of uh, not being stubborn, not digging my heels into the ground, but being willing and open to be persuaded otherwise, if the truth would do that being willing to listen, being deferential. Now, that's far from the party spirit that was mentioned up there in verse 14, is it not? Again, this is heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above. And notice what happens. It says next that it's full of mercy and good fruits. And those two things are linked together. There's a little connector there that links mercy with good fruits together. And this is the kind of mercy that that's, uh, that a person has when they're ready to help someone who's in trouble, and the, and the person who is in trouble has actually brought the trouble on themselves. It's their fault that they're in trouble. But we're, we're compelled to have mercy towards that kind of a person, and to do it in a practical sort of a way. It's not just, hey, brother, I'll pray for you. It's, hey, brother, I'll pray for you, and let's talk about what can I do f with you to help you out of that situation. So it's a very practical mercy. And notice, it results in positive outcomes. It results in good fruits. The final two character traits that get issued forth in behavior and conduct are impartial and sincere. The word impartial here in the context means unwavering, undivided, not vacillating on certain convictions. It demonstrates a singleness of heart. You're not going to put your, your heels in the ground and be stubborn about something that's not that important. But the important things, 
let's say, the, the clear doctrines of Scripture, you're going to be committed to that. You're going to be unwavering with that. That's what wisdom from above produces. And I, I love the, the connection here because it, 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 these, these all balance each other. They play off each other. And then finally, sincere. And this means without hypocrisy, not wearing a mask, <laughs> not disguised, in other words, as in the theater, not playing a part. Um, it means genuine. It, to use a term that younger generation today use a lot, authenticity, to be authentic, to be who you really are. That's what James is saying, wisdom from above, from above creates. Did, did anybody come to mind? Do you know of anybody who fits that description? Did you think of someone? Imagine what a great way to go through life, exhibiting those character traits, right? What a difference that would make in a contentious, fractious local church to have those kind of people at play. I was immediately reminded of one of my mentors, Dr. Vernon Grounds. He was the president of Denver Seminary when Deb and I were there and I was a student getting my seminary degree. I wish he was still alive. He lived into his mid-90s. He's with the Lord face-to-face -face now. But if Dr. Grounds were to walk in this, uh, if you were still living and were to walk in here and I was to introduce him to you, Lanny, if I was to introduce Dr. Grounds to you, you seriously, you would think within the span of 30 to 60 seconds that you had known him for decades. He just had that ability because he was infused with wisdom from above. And it just, it literally... Just all of these character traits just kind of came out of his pores. It was just automatic. It was amazing and such a great model for me. These are qualities of heavenly wisdom. These are qualities of what James calls this harvest of righteousness. Well, let's kind of wrap this with this fourth point from verse 18, namely that righteous fruit, this harvest of righteousness, righteous fruit, has an end point. It has a purpose. They have a purpose. They produce peace. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I see a progression in this passage. I see that this gift of wisdom from above, it, it creates these character traits in verse 17 and in fact gets evidenced by those character traits in our conduct that we saw in verse 17. This uh, harvest of righteousness then produces peace. And specifically, James again is writing to groups of believers, it produces peace within the local church. It changes our behavior, which in turn changes how we relate to each other. If, if we're all exhibiting peaceableness and gentleness and all these things that he's been talking about here, then that's going to, in turn, produce something, right, in our local churches. It's going to produce the kind of peace that James is talking about. And this is significant because James is about to launch into this next section in chapter 4. And it's very specific teaching, very specific exhortations, in fact, warnings. He's going to use graphic and at times quite harsh language to make his point. Wisdom from above is necessary to receive the teaching that we're going to hear 
from James in the next several verses. But you know what? We're incapable of responding to his exhortations apart from receiving this gift, this supernatural wisdom from above. And if we think that we can produce some of this kind of stuff and uh, just by trying harder through our own efforts, guess what? We're using earthbound wisdom. We're not employing spiritual wisdom. We're using earthbound wisdom. And so I'm not going to send you out today with a new list of things to do, right? To work harder at. That's not what this is about. Instead, James has been revealing to us these, these qualities and behavior traits that will naturally occur when we possess wisdom from above. And that's the gift that I believe James is encouraging his audience to pray for. In other words, these verses make specific the general prayer of, Lord, give me wisdom. I lack wisdom. I need wisdom. I need wisdom from above. Well, when you pray that prayer, and I urge you to do that, pray the prayer of James 1.5, but when you pray the prayer of James 1.5, pray it in light of James 3.17. Does that make sense? So it gives you more specific things to pray about. And like Paul's fruit of the Spirit, which results from the Holy Spirit living inside of us, you notice it's, it's not the fruit of Tim helped out by the Spirit. No, it's the fruit of the Spirit that Paul's talking about. It's the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Just like that, this wisdom from above that we are to ask for and God will freely give to us is a gift. It's a gift from God. So again, I don't, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that this was some sort of moralistic sermon and I gotta go home and try harder. No, that's not what it's about. Um, in fact, the, the, only, the only way that this happens is as our relationship with Jesus Christ grows stronger and stronger. Frequently, many of you know, I pray that God will, I pray to God that, that, that he will um, allow me to fall more in love with Jesus. Well, the more I fall in love with Jesus, the more I'm going to have this gift of wisdom from above, which is going to issue forth in the character traits and the conduct that we've already seen. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes that connection. Now, he's writing after James, but he makes that connection later. I wonder if he, maybe he would have thought about what James said here. In his first letter to the church at Corinth, in the very first chapter, right out of the, the beginning of that, of that letter, he connects wisdom, this wisdom from above, he connects it to Jesus Christ. And we're always looking for ways to connect a message to Jesus. Well, this one is an easy one to do. Let me read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And Taylor started our singing this morning out of this passage. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through earthly wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But what do we do? We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Ultimately, he is the source, and he also is the model for this wisdom from above. So when we pray for wisdom, I wanna urge you to pray specifically for wisdom that is pure and peaceable and gentle 
and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Let's pray for and then gladly receive from God this wisdom that produces something. It produces shalom. I think James has in mind that Old Testament concept of shalom, that comprehensive idea of wholeness and completeness and soundness, the overall good that comes to the person whom God favors. Heavenly wisdom yields a a harvest of righteous conduct, producing peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. It's a a wonderful thing to observe week in and week out how this text written many centuries ago yet is speaking to us here, written in the first century yet in the 21st century, it rings loudly and clearly and makes sense to us as well. So Lord, take the truth of your word, drive it deep into our hearts so, so it can take root there and then bear fruit to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.